I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Moshe Meyerfeld is the co-founder and co-director of Key, an organization that helps young Jewish people in New York City better connect with their heritage. He's here today to both share his story and talk about his organization. Moshe, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to kind of do a two-part interview here. On the one hand, I want to hear about your organization and the work that you're doing in New York City. But before we get to that, let's have our listeners learn a little bit more about you personally. So give me a sense of where your story begins in terms of where you were born and raised. So I uh, was born in a small town in New Jersey. Most people wouldn't have heard of it. It's called Norma, New Jersey. I often tell people that I'm from Vineland because that's the largest small town near (laughs) the middle of nowhere where I'm actually from. It's a fascinating historical place to have grown up. Uh, It was a town of refugees, post-World War I and pre-World War II. A great philanthropist, Baron Hirsch, bought the city, which you could do in those days. Um, And he gave it to refugees at no interest loans so they could become farmers, even though they had no training or no, you know, no background in farming, coming from Europe, uh, needing to get their feet on the ground and historically beautiful and a great story, but also very challenging uh, for a teenager to grow up there. You know, after that historical relevance, uh, it became a little <laughs> bit of a, of a challenge. And I guess that, that explains a lot of, of my background as well. Okay, so we'll get into the teen years in just a minute. Take it back <laughs> to the Take it back to the beginning in terms of what was the Jewish community like there? And how were you being raised in your early years from a Jewish perspective? Okay, so I had, I had a wonderful, amazing family, Baruch Hashem, still do. My grandfather, Oliver Shalom, became a, a chicken farmer in this town of Norma. Um, and he was a businessman in Germany, and he became a chicken farmer for two reasons. Number one was that he said that the chickens also spoke German, so he didn't have to worry <laughs> about the language barrier. Uh, and number two, very relevant to this podcast, I think, is that he said that uh, he had heard in Germany about the challenges of of keeping Shabbos in America. It was a seven-day work week, you know, wartime. You, you know, the early minyanim that we often hear about today were, were many times started because people needed to get to work on Shabbos morning. You know, so they dive in at six so they could be finished by eight so they could be at work. It was a challenging time. And without any judgments, you know, he, he felt that if he was self-employed, if he was working for the chickens, as he used to say, they'll wait <laughs> till Saturday night for the chicken you know, for the eggs to be collected. <laughs> and and thank God, you know, he was a Shomer Shabbos and, and raised a family of, of Shomer Shabbos and was really most enough. He really gave up a, a tremendous amount for that and instilled in us the, the importance of community and of Shabbos and doing what was challenging, even if it was difficult, it was worthwhile. So that's the type of family that I came from. Hardworking yekas, you know, they came from Germany, thank God. We had an amazing story of survival from Frankfurt, Germany. I had a, a great uncle who was a young man who left Germany. They thought he was crazy. He was 17 years old between the wars. Um, they all thought he was crazy. Why are you leaving? And he literally sponsored the entire family. An amazing schuss, an amazing merit that he had. Uh, and he brought out the family one by one. And they started from nothing and built themselves up in, in this small rural town of New Jersey. And it's also really creative, like you said, that he became self-employed because you hear all those stories of people who got fired every Friday afternoon, which is just painful to hear. Yeah, one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard about that is that somebody hung in their in their sukkah. I don't remember if it was a pink slip or a green slip. You know, when they were fired, every Sunday they would return to work having not been there on Shabbos, and they got this piece of paper that you know meant they were fired, and they they made a chain in their sukkah. You know, of all the the slips from being fired from all those Shabbatot that they didn't show up to work. You know, that was their their pride. But you know, 
collecting the eggs on Saturday night. That was my grandfather's way. My grandparents were there to stay. They were the, the president of the shul and the head of the mikvah my grandmother was, and they were very community-oriented. But that's what people did. People either left or, unfortunately, assimilated. So by the time I was a young man, there was very little Jewish infrastructure left. There's a small shul that my parents were responsible for, and you know, but it, there wasn't really a minion unless we brought guests to help us make the minion. Um, and in terms of schooling, although my older siblings had a local Jewish school, I, I no longer did. By the time I was already school age, the, the local school, there was not enough kids that were interested in that. They didn't live there anymore. So we ended up traveling to Philadelphia, which again was my parents' commitment to Jewish education. And, and you know, we traveled a lot, an hour and a half each way in order to get to the Whoa. local Jewish school in Philly. And I have great connections in Philly and I have a lot of Akara Satov and I'm still a strong supporter of Philadelphia sports teams, um, go Sixers, but it was a challenge. You know, it was, it was a challenge, but it was also, it gave me a lot of, of perseverance to work hard to becoming who I am. But did your parents, as they were sending you to Philadelphia, ever think, why don't we just pick up the family and live there or was the connection so strong where you were that you just said this is where yeah, we're supposed to be yeah look I, I, this isn't a therapy session but there was definitely <laughs> it might, was it definitely, might become one yeah, there was definitely you know i asked that question myself often but i remember my, my father used to say you know it's easy to be a religious jew in borough park you know let's try to you know let's see if we can do it here you know but it also gave us a lot of talents and skills and perspectives that we wouldn't have had in borough park you know, I learned how to lane and daven from a very young age because there was no one else to do that. You know, so you had to, you know, we split it up on Shabbos and everyone took an aliyah and you just did it. There was, you know, there, there wasn't a choice. And, you know, I think my parents always said that they're not going to leave my grandparents who were committed. And then Baruch Hashem, they, they, they had Arichas Yamim, they lived a long life. And by the time they were older, my parents were older. So, you know, we just, we, we ended up there. And I guess at this stage, that was when I went away to high school and I went to Shari Torah in Muncie. I'm a, a very proud student of Rabbi Barrel Wine. But, uh, you know, going away from high school was, was the norm in those days. So it wasn't the, you know, most of my class were, were not from Muncie. You know, there were some kids local, but many kids who traveled to be there and stayed in their dorm. So it wasn't abnormal for me. But, um, but yeah, but that was, that was the challenge and that was the, the experience that I went through. I have to tell you one quick story about Rabbi Wine, just because you, you brought him up. Uh, so he's in Israel now. Yes. And we went there for my son's bar mitzvah about two years ago, which was like right before the pandemic started. So it was just like a regular bar mitzvah. And my son's going to lay in the Parsha. And my wife is not there. I didn't know that she'd gotten lost on the way to the shul. And so our local rabbi, who also had come to Israel, Rabbi Yudin from Fairlawn, of course. went up to Rabbi Wine and said, look, the mother's not here. If she misses her son laning at the bar mitzvah, there's going to be a major shalom bias issue. Is wow. there any way that you'd be willing to give your drasha earlier? You know, for years, he would give it after the laning, and he changed it on the spot, and he spoke a little bit longer. By the time he finished, my wife walked in, and then the laning happened. I love that. You know, I'm sorry that she missed his speech because it was probably words of great wisdom. Um, <laughs> that's but, true. But it was, it was certainly more important for her to hear her son Lane. So that's a beautiful insight. It's amazing. We talked, you know, you said you'd get to my, my high school years, but th th those, those years were a challenge. You know, I was growing up lonely in a farm town. 
and I didn't have any Jewish friends locally. Uh, I didn't really have any friends locally. Wait, you didn't have any religious Jewish friends or even secular Jewish friends? Even sec, it was a small farm town. There wasn't really that, you know, like, like I, you know, that I had one non-Jewish friend who's today the police chief, the fire chief in the area. You know, she, uh, you know, a real local. Um, but no, there, there weren't really, there wasn't a social life there, um, and that was that was a real challenge. Like, you know, fast forwarding when my wife Liat, who uh, first visited this small town Norma, and we went, you know, for the first time, as we got closer and closer, she was like, wow, this is so relaxing and so amazing. And she said, as I was getting closer and closer, she could see my my fingers, you know, st- you know squeezing the steering wheel harder and harder, <laughs> because for me, it was like this tense feeling, you know, so it's a great place to visit, a challenging place to live. And I had to find my own path. You know, I, I one of the benefits of being a bit of a rebellious has a, has a, 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 a loaded term, but, you know, certainly someone who was not going to conform to the, the, you know, the everyday life that I was taught and that, that I was supposed to be living, so to speak. And I had to find my own path. And, and being a, a bit of a naughty boy in Shari Torah and Munsi had its benefits because I ended up spending a lot of time in Herbal Wine's office. Um, <laughs> I mean, almost every day. Um, and I can tell you the nuggets of wisdom. You know, he was so good with me and he knew what to say. And the son of Chaim Wine really took me under his wing. And they were great to me. You know, and that story really resonates with me because they cared and they saw the long term. And that's also, you know, something that as we get into what I do today, I really think that the the long term belief in me, you know, not seeing the rambunctious, loud, uh, the cocky teenager, being able to see beyond that really instilled a belief in myself that really made who I, who I am today. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how you've referenced a couple times now this troubled period of your life, right? And a lot of the people we've interviewed started off not observant and their journey takes them to observance. You're starting off as a religious kid and then you're referencing this time period where things are going on. Mm. And so I want to hear about that and I'm just wondering, is a piece of that wondering if this lifestyle is even for you or are you thinking, of course I want to be religious, there's other things I'm going through in my teen years? So I guess I always believed that I would end up on the religious path. I did not think that I was going to be a rabbi, which often makes the best rabbis. But, um, you know, at, at some stage when I despised going to the dentist, I thought, oh, great, I'll make a great dentist one day because I'll know how to deal with, you know. So, so I, I flipped that to rabbinics, you know. I didn't like the formalities. I didn't like the system. I didn't like the imposition of rules and regulations. And I felt that it, you know, it was taking away my individuality. So, you know, rebellion has a spectrum, you know, and I, I was never I was never particularly off, but it certainly was not something that I felt as a priority in my life. I was busy. I was doing other things things. You know, I wanted to make my first million by the time I was 21. You know, the sports and the social activities were much more important to me than my Judaism. And I guess you could say that I just wasn't in love with it. It was something that I felt that I had to do, something that I didn't really want to do. But I guess that that was what shifted. You know, when I went to Israel, when I was in my gap year, or I thought was going to be a one-year stint, you know, I went to Jerusalem. Um, and I and often say, I, you know, I, I started learning Torah in, in, by choice for the first time. And I had great rebellion. I went to yeshiva that's no longer open today. It was called Ner Yaakov, and Rabbi Yeshua Lif and Rabbi Yanki Rappaport and uh, Ravaran Shadmi, who became a, a Rebbe of mine, who I still am. I learned daily with Ravaran Shadmi today, uh, who I met in Ner Yaakov. He gave an advanced night seder shir in Hebrew, and I went to the shir because I the, all the shirim were in English, and I wanted to learn a bit of Hebrew in my year in Israel, and I understood the shir a little bit too well. 
you know, my Hebrew wasn't great, but I understood. And then I realized it was mostly in English. Um, <laughs> so I, so I raised my hand and I asked him, I said, Rebbe, this, you know, the shear is supposed to be in Hebrew. So he said, well, then how am I supposed to practice my English? Um, so, uh. so that so we, we were both there for, anyway, we became very close. I fell in love um, with Judaism and I recognized, and I guess this is the key for me. I recognize the individuality that structure gives you. That for me is the key to share with people its individuality within the system. You know, that's what I was struggling with, but thank God I, I found that balance and I understood it better as I matured. So I want to go back to something you said that when you got to Israel, you feel like you kind of embraced Judaism by choice for the first time, right? And yes. often when I talk to people about the fact that I wasn't born observant, and they were, they'll say to me, you don't realize how lucky you are that you came to this as an adult and you made a choice to live this way. And that when you're from from birth, you're not even asking questions as you're being raised. It's just what you're used to. And then you might have this struggle when you get older saying, oh, I, I never really thought about, is this the lifestyle that I actually want to lead? So it's it's interesting to hear from you that you were struggling with that question and you, you came to kind of a good answer when you got to Israel as you were sort of turned on by what you were learning, I guess. Yeah. Look, I think that the the, the Navi, you know, the, we read it in Haftarah, the, the Navi warns us not to do mitzvahs from rote. Mitzvahs and Hashem Elamudov, you know, the idea of doing mitzvahs just out of habit or just because, you know, is something that is warned from us from the very beginning. Torah is meant to be engaging. It's meant to be uh, uplifting us. You know, Rav Noach, who, who I guess will we'll shift to that as well, but it became really my mentor and Rebbe in what I'm doing today, um, Rav Noach Weinberg's it's all, you know, he often talked about the need to be, you know, for Torah to be Torah's Chaim. It has to be alive. It's supposed to be an instruction book for living. If you're learning Baba Basra and you're not thinking about how I'm supposed to be a better person because of it, you're missing the point. You know, Torah is there as a guide to become great. Hashem wants us to be the best that we possibly can. If we just are robots, you know, Hashem doesn't need robots. He has malachim, you know, and that's the difference between, uh, you know, the, the angels and the humans. We have free choice. We have the ability to choose. So much of my world, whether it's Kirov Krovim and Kirov Rechokim and, and the Frum community and the less observant community, I find the, the thread and the similarities that go through all of them, there's much more in common than we have than when we think. Right. You know, sometimes we just have to wake people up the firm world as well. They need to be, you know, maybe the firm world, especially maybe what you're talking about is, is the greatest concern. If you're creating robots and creating children and, ad and adults, more worrying at the adults, you know, who are just doing things just because and they haven't thought about it. That, that's very scary. And, and I guess, you know what, you're right. You know, when people say to you or to any person who's gone through a, a growth experience and, and, and became aware and alerted to Torah in a way that they didn't know before, sometimes it's threatening. And, and people are often, you know, afraid of getting those questions. Well, why do you wash your hands before you eat bread? Well, I never really thought about that, you know. And why, why do you say those brachos? Well, I never really thought about that either. And, and you know what? They, they really should. So, you know, they really should think about these things. Mitzvahs are there as an instruction manual for becoming great. And you don't just flow up blindly. You got to figure out what it's there to do so that it can help you grow. Yeah, I love asking those questions because my friends in our community who are from from birth, when I ask them why they do something, they say, because my dad did it. Right. And I say, don't you ever want to know why he does it? <laughs> yeah. But they yeah, feel like I, they're sort of too far into it sometimes to ask these basic questions. And I'm never afraid to ask them because I want to know why I'm doing these things. I don't think they're basic. You know, I, I think those questions are the most key elements of who we are. 
You know, look, the Sefer HaChinuch wasn't afraid to talk about why we do mitzvahs. The Smog, the Smok, the, the, you know, the Rambam Sefer HaMitzvahs, there's, 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 thousands and thousands of wells of ink that have been written, you know, about what mitzvahs are there for and why they're there. And, and that's, the, you know, I think that's really what people need to, to plug into. And I also think that the more you are aware of it, when you hit a speed bump or when you hit a bit of a, a fork in the road, you can navigate it better because you're, you're engaged in it in a way that's with meaning and with understanding and with depth. Now, that doesn't mean that you're always going to get, you know, you're not always going to understand Hashem's ways in every way, right? Shlomo Melech had questions, the wisest of all men. But, but that doesn't mean that it's not a, a journey of engagement, of brain activity. It's, it can't be just blindly following. So let's now pick up your story, because before we got into this discussion, you were mentioning how you went to Israel. So I want to know what was the original plan and what ended up happening during your time there? (laughs) Uh, so the original plan was to be there for a year. You know, I'd already fast-tracked college. I was already, by the time I started yeshiva, I'd already finished a year and a bit of college. I finished up many of my electives. And I, while I was in yeshiva in Israel, I went on Fridays because it was only half a day yeshiva. I would go take extra classes and a, and a correspondence course. And I figured that I, you know, the quicker I finished college, the quicker I could start making money. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur and in business and, and doing things. And then, as I said, you know, okay. So I, I fell in love with yeshiva. I fell in love with learning and decided that I would learn another year and stay in Israel another year. Okay, the college will wait. And then uh, a year became two years and three years. And I, like I said, I fell in love with Israel and then I fell in love with my wife. I met Liat in Israel. Uh, she was in the Israeli army and, and also passionately into Jewish education and Jewish learning. She's an amazing teacher and educator herself. And she was a great inspiration to me as well. Uh, you know, and, and we, you know, we joined into our journey and we ended up getting married. We were both young and I stayed in Israel. And, and basically what I, when I finished my college degree at the same time, I did correspondence courses and I got my degree eventually, but I never went into business, let's put it that way. And while we were learning and studying in Israel, I was offered a job in Neve Tzion, a yeshiva in Israel, and Neve was a great opportunity to use my experiences and also grow in my experiences. I did an internship in drug counseling, an intense internship in, in helping youth who had been struggling with addiction and other issues in their lives. And I worked in Neve for a number of years, and we thought we were staying in Israel. And just to fast forward a little bit, we have a house there, we still have a house there. We thought we were going to be in Israel forever, and so many of my contemporaries and colleagues in Kolel and, and studying there and friends, you know, they were all looking for different opportunities in Chutzlaretz to, to go and to teach and to do. And, and we thought our, our spot was in Israel. We, you know, Liat was teaching in seminaries. I was teaching in, in Neve. Um, and we thought we would stay there for, you know, forever. Um, our first three beautiful children were, were born there and life was good in Israel. And then an opportunity came up to, that offered me a job to go to England. I ended up working for Asia in England for 20 years. But basically, um, well, yeah, I kind of ruined the wait, punchline. Let, wait, slow down for one second. You <laughs> thought you were going to stay in Israel. Right. Raise a family there, do everything there. An opportunity came up with Asia in the UK that you were thinking would be like a short-term thing and then back to Israel, but it became a 20-year pit stop? Correct. I thought I was going to be there for two years and it ended up being 20. So we added a zero to the two and ended up in England for, for much longer than, than expected. Um, and that was a whole other experience. This sounds like you got into the world of Kirov. So how did you make that jump? You know, there are two things that I love. I love people 
and I love Hashem and, and Judaism. When I have an opportunity to connect those things, I'm in a happy place. And for me, the, the difference between the work in Neve, which was, I guess, you know, I, I, these terms, I don't like these terms. I don't like putting people in boxes, but, you know, the, the terminology that people are ex usually expressed this with, you know, I was working in Kirov Krovim, uh, you know, the shift to Kirov Rechokim for me wasn't that different. There are people and this is Torah and you have to figure out a way of connecting those things. Um, the thing that really got me to stay for 20 years, though, and I, and I mentioned Rav Noach uh, Weinberg earlier, was was I guess you know between Rabbi Wine always encouraging us to think of the big picture, and in terms of my family, my parents, my grandparents, really educating me about community and the need for taking responsibility. That was the you know the DNA that was instilled into my being, my physical being, my spiritual being. And once I became passionate about Torah the way that I was, you know the next level was Rav Noach saying, well, what's the greatest need and what's your greatest ability to make a difference. And when I felt that I could do something that was perhaps different, unique, beyond just the average Joe, I felt that's where I had to be. So two years became five years and five years became <laughs> seven years. And, you know, and, and Baruch Hashem, we had another five children in England. Wow. And, our, you know, our family of eight grew to, to not just a family of eight, but to literally hundreds and thousands of people who came through our doors and became part of our family and became part of, you know, the Jewish community through the work that we were doing there uh, over 20 years. What was the hook during that time period that got people in the door? Is it something social? Is it something tour related Is it a chance to potentially meet another Jewish person to date and maybe marry? Like, what's getting people turned on during that time period? It used to be. It used to be that people, certainly in the beginning of my career and pre-dating when I was involved in outreach, I think people were looking for truth. How do I know Torah is true? How do I know there's a God? And the Arachim seminars and the Discovery seminars of that ilk were very popular because people were saying, oh, is this true? Right? Interestingly, that's shifted. People aren't so interested if it's true or not anymore because truth has a different definition in the postmodern world. You know, every, everybody has their own truth and your truth and my truth. And, you know, that, that's not what people are looking for per se. Today, they're looking for relevance to my life. So when you say I have a love, dating and marriage seminar that's going to show you that Torah has wisdom there, people are like, great, I'm looking for wisdom. You know, people are looking for wisdom everywhere, right? Whether it's on Netflix or whether it's at a party or whether people are looking for, for relevance. They're looking for something meaningful. So when you create something engaging, interesting, meaningful with a Torah angle, right? So people are willing to at least try it, at least listen. Right? And when you show them that there's something there, they often are, you know, very engaged by that. So then the, the two years that became 20, I would have thought the next stop would be our heart is in Israel. So we're going to go back there. But that's not the next stop because you just referenced New York City. So how did that become the next move? <laughs> the, the plan was always to go back to Israel. But Rabbi Wein used to always say that every community is looking for a 30-year-old rabbi with 20 years of experience. You know? <laughs> but the balance of being young enough and energetic enough and committed enough and engaged enough and relevant enough to be able to work with young people, but also with the wisdom and the experiences that we had, you know, we really felt that, first of all, we didn't want to stay in England just because. You know, Manhattan is the epicenter. There are more Jews in a one-mile radius, more young Jews, 20 to 30-year-old Jews, in a one-mile radius of where I'm sitting right now in the Lower East Side of Manhattan than anywhere else outside of Israel. And predominantly, they're secular. 
You know, the Lower East Side has so much Jewish history. Almost everyone I meet that I say I live in the Jewish, you know, in the Lower East Side, people say, oh, my grandfather, oh, my grandmother, oh, my, I'm like, yes, everybody, you know, this was the immigration point, right? If you didn't end up in a farm in New Jersey, this is where you ended up. So when we came, Liat and I were offered an opportunity to come as scholars in residence in a shul here in Manhattan in the Fifth Avenue Synagogue. Um, and we were still living in England and we came and we just sort of looked around at the what was going on here. We were taken by the lack of connection of the young Jews here. We had twins who um, visited us recently for a Shabbat dinner. How they met us, okay, we met. I invited them for Friday night dinner and, and one is studying philosophy. And, you know, he asked me about, you know, the concept of questioning in Judaism. So I was in my happy space because, you know, <laughs> but from his perspective, religion doesn't question. That's what he knows. You know, many other religions don't. And so he said, you know, am I allowed to question Judaism? Am I allowed to question? So I gave him a whole, you know, discourse about the Gemara and Shaklavitaria and questions and answers. And our whole educational system is predicated on questions. And I said to him, really, it predates the Gemara because, you know, he wasn't familiar with the Talmud. I gave him a little bit of a history lesson on what it was. I said, but really, it predates the Talmud. I said, because the... Uh, prototype of education in Judaism is the Passover Seder. Right? We talk about the Passover Seder is the essence of education in Judaism. And he looked at me and he said, what's, what's a Passover Seder? I mean, most non-Jews know what a Passover Seder is, right? So I thought maybe he wasn't familiar with the word. You know, okay. So I said, you know, matzah for questions, your grandparents, nothing. He had never heard of a Passover Seder, right? So first of all, to me, that's why we live in Manhattan. That's why we came. That's why we're not home in Israel yet. You know, please God, we'll get there and we'll bring him with us, right? But, <laughs> but, that's, but that's why we got to be here. We got to be here because of this guy who, who's never heard of a Passover Seder. So I'm seeing this theme with you that you, you make a move and you think it's for a short time, but it ends up being uh, longer than you expected. We'll, we'll, see. we'll see how long we're here, but you know, the, ultimately we do want to return to Israel. And I mentioned in the introduction, an organization called Key. So give me a sense of how that came about, what the name means, and, and all that good stuff. So we moved to New York, and we thought we were going to be here working for Aish, and we started a new young professional program for Aish here in the city. We moved to the Lower East Side because we really felt that was the, the key place to live. You know, it was the epicenter of activity, and we actually live in a perfect triangle between the Lower East Side, the East Village, and uh, Alphabet City, which is really where all the young people are. Uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic, a lot of things changed, and we ended up starting our own independent stucca called Key. So after 22 years, really, you know, 20 years in England, um, and then two years here working for Aish in New York, uh, we ended up starting our own independent stucca. Still very close with Rabbi Yehuda Weinberg, of Noah Weinberg's son. He's on our advisory board. And Key is, is very much in the in the merit and in the philosophy of Rav Noach. But it's it's our organization. My wife and I are co-founders, co-directors. You know, thank God we have a small staff and it's growing. So Key is a, a result of, of many hours of discussion. And the word Key is the Hebrew word Key because, right, which is the essence of what things are. We talked about that. We believe that people, you know, really want to plug into what the, what's behind the curtain uh, in Judaism. But it's also the English word key, which is unlocking opportunities, but also a call to the rationale of reason, of knowing, you know, and a reminder to focus our attention of that, which is, is truly crucial. And Key's goal is to reach out to the truly unaffiliated. You know, there's lots of programs in Manhattan. There's some beautiful shuls, the, the beautiful outreach organizations that are there to teach people who want to learn. But Key's real focus is to connect people who truly have no connection with, with Judaism thus far. 
And so you keep using this word key, but just so our listeners can find you, it's spelled K-I-I, correct? Correct. K-I-I-NYC.com. We're focused on young professionals. Those are, are the driven, you know, sort of people here in Manhattan that are also on a journey, you know, whether it's in business or whether it's in personal development, whether it's relationship development. And we feel we want to have that as a, you know, in the buffet of opportunities here in the city, we want Judaism to be on that buffet as well. So similar to the question I asked you when you were in the UK, what brings somebody in the door now in New York City to your organization? TikTok. <laughs> uh, so, no, I mean, the, the answer is yes. We, we use a lot of social media uh, in order to connect people, often peer to peer, which was something big in England. You know, a friend comes, you bring five friends with you because you liked it and want to come back. Interestingly, because of the demographic that we're, we're focusing on, there's less peer to peer because, and again, this, I guess, explain, you know, sort of gives an insight into the state of the community. When we ask, you know, someone that we met, you know, to bring five friends, they often tell us they don't have Jewish friends. Really? You know, so it's not as easy to, to connect people that way. But maybe it's, oh, I have one friend who I work with. I think they're Jewish, you know. So yeah, it's, it's, some, it's some of that. It's also the social media platform and the social media, uh, you know, snowball effect. But we, we, I don't know, we have a strong Judar. We walk through the streets, we see people, <laughs> you, t- you know, we talk to people, we ask people. And we've got, thank God, a, 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 you know, a name for ourselves. You know, key strapline is Judaism on a first name basis. I think we plug into that, and that really is something that manifests in, in the work that we do in the, in the organization that we're running. But when you reach out to an unaffiliated Jew, and you, what are you telling them? We have an event we think you might like to come to. We have a class. Like, What's that first intro, and what, what brings them there? So everyone's different. We have, on an ongoing basis, every month... You know, it doesn't always work there with the Chagim and, and, and secular calendar dates, etc. But our goal is to have ongoing a Chesed program once a month. Right? We call it social action. Uh, we have a, a social event, purely social, just Jews getting together. Right? We just had our Purim party with over 100 people. If you, you know, we had our Hanukkah party a few months ago with 200 people. Right? Purely social event marking, you know, yeah, it has some Judaism content, but it's not a sheer. It's, not, you know, it's just a social event, a barbecue, with it, you know, something like that, and an educational event. Are you also listening for someone who says, well, this was fun? Like, what else is there? Is that part of it? And then when someone says that, what is that next thing when you see that someone is turned on? Right. So I I feel like the cycle, it's a circle and it depends for each person where they're going to enter in that circle. And that's why at any point when we meet somebody, I always want to have those programs in place, you know, a chesed event, a social event, a educational event uh, somewhere so that at any stage when I meet uh, coming up in the next week or two or three maximum, right, there's going to be something that's going to be interesting for them. And then we have Friday nights every single week, but our Friday night dinner is a little bit different. Our magic number is 40. And we basically sell out every week. We, we have a, a unique spot where we can host that many people here in the city, um, in our home. And it's small enough that with 40 guests that people feel like it's a first name basis. We get to talk to everybody. They get to talk to each other. They don't feel like it's an event. They still feel like it's a home. But it's large enough that we're maximizing our opportunity. So we have 40 people every Friday night for Shabbos meals. And then, you know, so that between that and the programming and then everything else is more individualized. You know, a chabura here, a chabrusa there, a coffee date there, a bowling outing, you know, it, it, everybody's different. One of the skills that is crucial to what we do is making what one would call a mundane conversation into a meaningful one. You know, I think that that's really the key. And in terms of, you know, you ask different people, different opportunities. I'm a big believer in a non-monolithic Judaism. 
You know, I think there has to be There's so many ways to connect to Hashem. You know, we, we have 12 Shvatim, Shivim Panam Torah. You know, these are all, you know, one of my favorite Divrei Torah. At the end of Yisrael, when we talk about the ramp that goes up to the Mizbeach, right? So I saw a beautiful vart once that, that says that the Mizbeach was a ramp because it's individualized. You know, steps has, everyone goes up and down the same. It's, you know, three inches, three inches, right? But a ramp, different people are going to take different size steps. You know, I think that has to be the key to Jewish growth and to how people connect, that everyone has their own path. And that's why we don't have an agenda in key. You know, depending on where you are and what your relationship with Hashem is, that's going to be how you're going to connect, you know, in that meaningful way. And so let's bring your organization to life even further. I have to believe there's been a great story or two of a particular person who's come through the doors and just had like an unbelievable result. So pick from your Rolodex of stories and tell us a good one. All right. Um, can I tell two? You can have two for sure. Okay. All right. One was, you know, a, a fellow who, who was in a tough spot and I, and I helped him and, you know, and he called a few months later to thank me. And he said to me that he was doing really great and I was so happy to hear. And we were talking it through a little bit. And I said, David, who would have thought? And he said to me something that was amazing. And, I, and just the fact that he said it really reminded me of what we're doing and how important it is. I said, David, who would have thought? And he said, Rabbi, you did. That, I guess, you know, it was an important reminder for me that when we believe in people, you know, they can achieve. The more interesting one, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're listening with children, you might want to skip the next 30 seconds or so. But I'll, I'll tell a, a PG version of the story. I, I got a phone call from a student of mine on a Matzah Shabbos. Now, I must be honest, my students don't call me on a Matzah Shabbos. Like, that's not, you know, that's their time. They're out doing their thing. I, you know, it's rare that I, I get a call from, a, from one of my students on a Matzah Shabbos. Um, anyway, he calls me on Matzah Shabbos, and I'm surprised to see his number come up on my phone. And I, I took the call, and he said... Um, out. I can't really talk now. He said, but is it okay? Can I come to you next Shabbos? So I said, of course, you can come every Shabbos. He said, no, I really, I want to come for the whole thing. So I said, look, we'll talk about it during the week if that's, you know, if it's going to, but yes, in theory, yeah, of course, you know, if you want to come for the whole Shabbos, we're happy to have you. Now he had been to multiple, multiple Friday night dinners just for Friday night dinner, right? And figuring out and helping someone, guiding them to being Shomer Shabbos, right? Is, 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 you have to be careful. Anyway, so I said, we'll talk about it. But of course, if you want to come, we'll have you. Anyway, he comes next Shabbos. He comes to the whole Shabbos. Friday night dinner, like I said, we have 40 people. He's part of the table, lovely, sleeps over. Shabbos lunch, it's a smaller crowd. It's just the family and one or two other guests. And he says, can I tell you the story, you know, of, of why I called you last Saturday night? He says, the week before... He had gone to Miami for a bachelor party of a friend who was getting married. And he already, you know, he was already at the stage that he wanted to engage with Friday night, at least, and Shabbos, whatever. So a couple of them were Jewish. They made Kiddush. And then they went out to a club. And he was uncomfortable. And it was a club that, you know, they, they, they weren't doing, uh, you know, they weren't just drinking. It was a, a club of, of all kinds of different things going on. And he was uncomfortable, and he was debating, and he's thinking, do I really want to be here? Anyway, it's now 4 o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, and he's still in this club. So a young lady comes over to him, and she tries to sell him something. And he says, how much does it cost? And he's, he's debating and thinking, and he says to her, and this is what he says to me, right, to, my, to, to our family at the table. He says, I don't know what made me ask this question. I looked at her, and I said, are you Jewish? This waitress in a club, okay? And she looks at him and she says, yes. And he said, I'll tell you what, I don't want your product. He said, but I'll give you the money anyway, on condition that you use it next week to buy candles for Friday night. I want you to light Shabbos candles next Friday night. 
Wow. And she had like a tear in her eye and he gave her the money and she walks away. And I said, did you get her number? He's like, listen, I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't want to go down that route, right? And he gave her money to buy Shabbos candles. And he said to me, and this is, you know, with emotion and with a tear in his eye, he said, I was in a club on a Friday night at four o'clock in the morning. And this is what I'm thinking about. He said, I'm worried if she's Jewish and if she has Shabbos. He said, I realized if that's, you know, if that's what's in my kishkas, he said, then, then I need to take the next step. And he said, then that's why he was here for Shabbos. And he joined us for the whole Shabbos. And he's been, you know, with us quite a bit. And, he, you know, if he's not with us, he's with other family and friends. And he's been engaged in keeping Shabbos now for a number of months. I don't know if I would ever advise to be in that club in Miami, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a stepping stone for Jewish growth. But it was a real spark, a real connection for him and, and a very beautiful story for us. And because you're dealing with young singles and when they get turned on to possibly becoming religious, I would think there's a piece of their parents getting involved at some point and whether they're happy about this or not. Because I, w- I would think that when they when they come to a couple of events, the parents might be like, good for you, like exploring Judaism. But then if it goes beyond that and it's I'm thinking of changing my life, that the parents might have a different reaction. We try our best whenever we can to reach out to families. We Whenever our f- our students' families come to the city, we invite them for as well. We, you know, we want them to see what we're doing. We want them to be part of it. When we prepare a bride and groom for their wedding and a chassan kala, when we're learning with them, we, we invite the parents to join some of the sessions before the wedding. A, because it's a beautiful journey, and B, because you know, want them to see what they're doing. We're not talking about kids. We're talking with young professionals, engaging with the family and not being, you know, being very transparent, not having a hidden agenda. You know, people see the the beauty and the relevance that we're doing, and I think that we can't talk to you know multiple generations at the same time. And when it is done that way, you know, it could be good for both sides. And when it's not, unfortunately, we've seen the damaging sides of that as well. Beautifully said. And so I have a two part closing question before we get to our lightning round. Oh wow! Okay. So I'm I'm just wondering what's next for Key over the next couple of years, and how are you going to find your way back to Israel? Because I feel like after listening to your story, that somehow that's going to be in the future. Okay, so what's next for Key is, you know, I I mentioned that our website is key-nyc.com. We don't want to just be in New York City. Yeah, we want Key to be able to make a a significant difference to all of the Jewish people. So yes, we're in Manhattan, but, you know, we're going to have satellites, please God, soon, both in Manhattan and other areas in New York, and then eventually beyond. I think this is a a personal connection and a methodology that works for people. So we want it to grow and to build, and please God, you know, we have big dreams here in the city, but, you know, we're looking for people who going to partner with us, both staffing-wise and funding-wise. You know, we need it both. We need good people uh, who believe in this and are willing to step up to help make that happen. And so we're going to look to hire more people, we're going to look for more investors, and we're going to keep dreaming and keep building. In terms of the return of Israel, you know, that's where our heart is, that's where our home is. What we will do there, I'd love to have no need for outreach. I'd love to have the Jewish people all connected, you know, in, in a way that's meaningful and growing and, and not out of rote, but out of meaning. But I feel like, you know, Israel, there's plenty of work to do in Israel. We'll figure out what the need is. We'll figure out what our skill set is. And we'll, you know, we'll figure out where they overlap. And by the way, when we're done with this recording, you need to call your friend from the club story and say, I want you to open Key Miami because he has a connection <laughs> down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Key Miami is definitely in the cards. There's a lot going on down there. Um, There's a lot of people moving there, and I could definitely see something like that happening. Beautiful. So let's close with our lightning round. I'm going to ask you some super fast questions. Are you ready? Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm ready. 
All right, first one. What's one of the more interesting questions that a secular Jew has asked you about Jewish observance? It's a great question. I once had a guy who was coming to us regularly, and he was loving it, and then he kind of disappeared. And then he re- he showed up again, and basically he was invited by a family. They only had him as a guest. And he asked me if that was also a Shabbat dinner. He wasn't sure if we were doing <laughs> the same thing. But what was fascinating was that he said to me that going to a small Friday night dinner inspired him to end up keeping Shabbos. When he came to us, it was nice and he enjoyed it, but he could never see him doing it. You know, he thought he had to host 100 people in order to have Shabbos. When he went to a family and he was the only guest, he realized this is something I can do. Very nice. So from your time at Aish in the UK and also through Key, how many Jewish marriages would you say you've been responsible for, either directly or indirectly? Baruch Hashem, I've been Masadar Kedushin at over 100 weddings. Wow. All of those were with a real relationship with the couple. It wasn't, you know, I don't really do rabbi for hire. Um, most of them, I knew both sides of the, you know, the bride and groom. So that's probably, you know, 160, 170 individuals, but probably quite a few more that I've been indirectly responsible and involved with as well. And you mentioned you do these Friday night meals that have about 40 guests. So what's the signature dish that you serve at these meals? It's all Liat, let's be honest. It's not, you know, uh, she's a superstar educator, but she ha- also is an amazing cook. I'm going to say the honey mustard corned beef. Many people are Shabbos observant today because of honey mustard corned beef. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the hook needs to be. Okay, last question. So you've referenced getting back to Israel a few times during the course of the interview. So I would think some of our listeners are inspired by what you're saying and are thinking at the very least they should go visit. So besides the Kotel, tell me a place you believe they should go. That's easy. Tzfat. Tzfat is the, the place to be. Okay. So why do you say that? I, I couldn't live there, but I love visiting there. And I think I figured it out after a while um, with the help of Liat. She pointed out to me that it's the perfect balance for me and for so many others of spirituality and chill. And it's really that mix. Um, and I think that that's, you know, life is about balance and life is about so much of my Judaism and my perspective of Judaism is about figuring out that balance. And Svat is a place where you feel ancient history, ancient wisdom, ancient spirituality, but also a very relaxed atmosphere um, is a perfect mix. So, you know, I, I would highly recommend hanging out there. I like how you described it as chilled spirituality. That is a beautiful one to end on. Moshe, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. Really pleasure to be here. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.